And good morning, Gary. And good evening, Jonathan. I am in Uniondale, New York, uh, at the Horror Writers Association Convention, and um, have a couple of friends with me. Um, mm -hmm. First of all, Peter Straub has been on our podcast before. Yep. Who's up for is nominated for his novel, A Dark Matter, Congratulations. and Congratulations. Uh, and is a former Life Achievement Award winner, and even. More current is we have Ellen Davo, who is receiving this year's Life Achievement Award. So congratulations, Ellen. Thank you. Congratulations. And congratulations. Peter's actually a major guest of honor at this point. Oh, yeah, I'm a, I, our guest of honor. Yes. <laughs> That's right. So we have everything worthwhile at the conference in this room at this moment. <laughs> I can believe it. But it's, it's proving to be a good weekend for you all? Yeah, it's quite nice. Yeah. It's uh, kind of low-key and... Um, we're missing the zombie jamboree. Yeah, we're whatever it's called. There was a zombie ghoul ball or something, but we were having dinner. Well, yeah, you have to you have to make your choices. You know, sort of some things you have to give up in order to have dinner. Yeah. We've had quite enough zombies, I say. <laughs> you, are you finished with zombies? Are you Do you think we've had enough of them? We've had enough zombies. I can believe. Good zombies coming out, but you know, I've had, <laughs> I've had enough of them for years. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure the rest of the field agrees with you yet. It seems as though we're fated to sort of stumble along with them for a while yet. Rest of the field. Well, one of one of the questions, and I uh, actually didn't even know who the uh, a panelist was, was asking Ellen, and uh, what's the next thing in zombies? And I thought that's a really odd question because it sounds <laughs> like zombies is a genre unto itself. <laughs> and that's an excellent. And we've seen interesting things. I mean, I think Daryl Gregory's novels, uh, *Raising Stony Mayhall*, is an interesting. Thing to do with zombies. I thought Amelia Beamer's novel was an interesting thing to do mm -hmm. with zombies. But why do people care about zombies as zombies? I mean, why not? I know. Uh, that I don't know. I'm not sure. But I mean, I mean, as with vampires, though, I think you're always going to get decent or really good zombie stories or novels. I mean, it depends on what you do with it. And I was pointing out there are some stories I've read that are really good zombie stories. Yeah. Scott Edelman's sure. been writing some really huh. excellent ones from the point of view of I'm a zombie, what happens at the end of the world, how do I deal with it? And, and I mean, he did a really good job on that. And then uh, there was a story, I think, um, by uh, Katrina Sumner-Smith that I took for the year's best. I forget the title of it, but it's basically what happens when all the zombies, when there are no more people left. When they've won. When you've mm -hmm. won. What hap it's called something like that, after the zombies win. And what happens? I mean, they starve to death, right? Or they eat each other, but they still starve to death. Mm -hmm. And then I, I just bought a, Terry and I just bought a story by Carrie Ryan, who wrote The Forest of Hands and Teeth. And the Forens. I can never remember. But she wrote a story called After the Cure, which is about a young woman who had, there's now a zombie antidote. <gasps> and once, what happens after you are no longer a zombie, you have the memories of what you did as a zombie, you still kind of have this weird urge you're a vegetarian now but you really would love some steak but you can't you're not but you're can't you're not going to act on it how do people who were never zombies react to you when they know that you slaughtered their families <laughs> and it's a whole interesting take on what happens after you zombie after the zombie plague when it's you know, cured yeah right. and it's an amazing story but and John, so you can always do yeah. interesting things with it if you have to <laughs> I, it would never have occurred to me to do that but it's a, it's a wonderful idea post-traumatic zombie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but Jonathan, one of the things you and I have talked about before, yeah. or I've talked about it, it, it which it, it's a hobby horse I used to get on, is that fantasy as a genre, and, and, and fantasy I include broadly supernatural fiction, um, 
has, has the widest range of possibilities of any kind of fiction out there. It has a wider range of possibilities than science fiction, which is constrained by some notion of verisimilitude. Certainly has a wider range of options. And yet, consistently, fantasy and horror fiction seem to me to return to the same narrow set of tropes and narrow set of uh, ideas when they don't have to. They have, they have no boundaries at all, and they choose to stay within boundaries. Do you well, okay. I'm sorry. I can see the you go ahead. Go okay. Jonathan, you go. Jonathan. All I was going to say is, do you think that's a reaction to the freedom that the form allows? I mean, you see that in music, you see it in other art, whatever else, where when there is a, um unlimited uh, palette that you can paint with, you end up choosing a more restricted palette just so that you can create something that's consistent that makes sense in terms of what you're talking about you know it gives you you, you cling to form because you're in a formless environment yes and, and I mean also um, mm -hmm. fantasy has become so broad and so spread out and so all over the place and so mainstreamy in a good way as far as the writing but possibly diluted as far as the fantasy aspect that I think people are reacting towards that with the advent of Kelly Link and writers like her. Kelly Link is a brilliant writer, but unfortunately, she heralded a whole bunch of people who are copying her, <clears throat> um, mm. to, uh, I think, a little bit too much. And that kind of mm. dilutes the idea of fantasy, um, which means no imaginary worlds. Most of the stories that she writes and other people are writing who write that kind of thing are writing contemporary fantasy situations. Um, I think that the reaction might be to go back to the form of an imaginary world, creating a fantasy world, and that to me is healthy for the field, to do both kinds of fantasy. It shouldn't be limited to one or the other. I'm not saying no, it should go one way or the other, but uh, there was a comment I was uh, sort of hijacked onto a podcast, and Karen Burnham doesn't mind saying this, and one of the, uh, Jeff Ford and Liz Hand, and Jeff made an interesting comment, and I never got a chance to follow up with him, that he thought, and, and Jonathan, uh, you and Ellen, both as anthologists would see, and actually Peter's an anthologist as well, mm -hmm. would see this better than I do, that he thought that in the 90s, fantasy and science fiction seemed to be doing exactly what Ellen described. It was just pushing at the boundaries, kind of trying new things. And he thought he saw that kind of contracting now uh, with fantasy and science fiction. But in the 2000s, he thought he saw it thought he began to see horror moving out mm -hmm. from the center. I think it's becoming more accepting of people who are not considered horror writers, mm -hmm. like Brian Evanson, for example, right. and people who are writing like that. And also, to me, the most in some of the most interesting writers write science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Mm -hmm. Jeff Ford, Liz Hand, Lucia mm -hmm. Shepard. I mean, these That's people, can, you know, and they, in a way, they're flexing their muscles, and they can, don't write whatever they feel like. It doesn't matter what it's called. That could be what Jeff is talking about. But Jonathan, is that your sense? Because you've been reading tons of short stories, and Jess has Ellen. Do I feel that, that, that people that there's been a contraction in the in the um, palette that, that writers are using? Well, in terms of fantasy and science fiction, but Jeff thought it was in the process of expanding among horror writers, or, or horror means more than it used to. I, I will say, I, I mean, I don't read a lot of horror, so my uh, opinion is going to be somewhat restricted, but. I think it is roughly true. You know, I, I can see that sort of pattern happening. I mean, uh, I do wonder whether, in fact, science fiction itself is contracting back again as well. Um, mm. I, I see it looking more inward, and I see that there's more of an urge away, you know, to, to, to not break down barriers, change what you're doing, 
pursue the cutting edge, but instead to sort of look inward uh, and eat the past more than it has. You know, and I, and I think that's probably a, a cyclical thing. Uh, I think, punk hmm? is, is like the most endemic of that, emblematic of that kind hmm. of uh, steampunk. It is is, seems to be emblematic of yeah. using the past to create science fiction um, that's conservative in, in political and well, other ways. Conservative in, 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 I think, in aesthetic ways, because one of the most popular stories of this year is Peter Watts' The Things, mm -hmm. which is a science fiction story about a science fiction movie, essentially. Which is also a horror yeah. movie. And it's also a horror story. Peter, you probably haven't read this. This no. is a it's a fantastic story. This is a retelling of John Carpenter's movie, The Thing, from The Thing's point yes. of view. Oh. Yes, and it was, it's it's been nominated for every award. It's almost in almost every year's best anthology. I yes. decided not to take it, uh -huh. partly because I knew everyone else would take it, yeah. and partly when I reread it, it wasn't horrific to me. It was mm. very moving. The mm. thing was extremely, yeah. uh, it was extremely. <laughs> I was very empathetic to the thing, so I felt this isn't horror. Right. <laughs> you know? oh, oh, not from the thing's point of view. <laughs> Peter, you're saying horror doesn't. Well, you were going to say something. It, it, uh, horror, horror need not be. Horrific always, and it can allow for empathic feelings. I'm, oh, I don't I, disagree with that. <laughs> oh, all right, good. Um, <laughs> I, I also think uh, that um, when we speak of horror, we so often speak of uh, very rigid lines and uh, demarcations and um, uh, identifiers. Um, and hor But hor horror really, from the beginning... I think always had connections to uh, uh, deeper connections to wider li literature than other genres, and that it need not at all be confined to vampires, zombies, werewolves, etc. I mean, that's an easy identification to make, and, and uh, it, it, it can uh, lead to uh, pleasant, excited states in a uh, in, in, uh, reader. But it also, I mean, Ultimately, those those kinds of maneuvers are always um, faintly cartoonish. Um, I mean, the the only non-cartoonish thing I've I've heard lately is the 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 wonderful consideration of the guilt and uh, uh, dire memories possessed of a person who had once been a zombie and now must <laughs> now must live with the horrible recognition of what he'd done, which would be akin to the, that of a mass murder uh, uh, released from jail and uh, set up shop in a little candy store somewhere and uh, mm -hmm. you know uh, yeah. and face uh, his his his, his uh, present with his past all the time. I think um, I think uh, horror is, uh, can has always been able to be more inward than that and and to um, oh, be more centered. Uh, in a way, uh, um, to deal more with the spirit than certainly crime fiction and um, and science fiction also. Um, it's not it's not about ideas in any sense. Um, What's it? Well, horror, horror isn't about ideas. No, yeah, horror, horror no. is not about ideas. I mean, I think I mean Douglas Winter's pat the pathos of genre, which uh -huh. was originally a. A speech I think he gave at HWA. I think it was. A talk. Mm -hmm. And it was, and I reprinted it on Event Horizon. It's been republished many times. Yeah. And it's the idea that horror is not a genre within itself, that it, it can be within many genres, it can mm -hmm. be within mainstream, 
It is, mm-hmm. it is the feel, it is um, more what is evoked by the story. Yeah. The, the, the disgust, the um, disquiet, the uh, discomfort. Yeah, the, the sense of grievance of yeah. loss. And that can be in any genre. It, it can. But where, where, where I would differ with Doug, with whom I agree on, on almost everything else, is that uh, we needn't say that it ceases to be horror when it goes into these things, but that these other things are themselves horror. And so I'd be, I'd be happy to reclaim all sorts of uh, mighty works of Western literature um, as, and, as works of horror. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and so well, I do think that over the years that um, that idea of what horror can be has kind of infected in a good way many writers. Mm. Yeah. And not always, but there still are the people in horror who are very insular and only see. Yeah, and the, uh, who don't accept that at all. Oh, that's that, 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 that was kind of a problem I was seeing, and I see it. I see it in every genre that there is there's a core group, and by, by every genre, I don't just mean mm-hmm. fantasy and science right. fiction and horror. There are people who only want to read English village murder mysteries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people only want to read um, uh, noir Neil Raymond Chandler hard-boiled stories, and they want them all to look like the ones they've seen before. Uh, But one of the points that Brian Aldous always made about Frankenstein, for example, which, you know, lived for about 150 years as a horror story until science fiction claimed it as its own, and now Hmm. Frankenstein is more prominent probably in the history of science fiction than in the history of horror fiction. No kidding. Yeah. Huh. Could have fooled me. Well, (laughs) it's horror. And then science is creating... It's a mad yeah, science. It's, 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 it's made up science. Well, of course it is. Well, it is, but it's an anti-alchemical story. I mean, the, okay. the, early, the earlier bits of it, Victor Frankenstein is studying the alchemical sciences and rejecting them. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a monster created through experimental science. Okay. Uh, and it may not be exactly uh, legitimate experimental science, but that's never stopped science fiction in its entire that's history. Right. Yeah, but that's a... That's something that's been around a long time. I mean, the science fiction horror. That's what obviously the thing from another planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, who goes but, there? What became okay. Right. But in science fiction, the science is not normally a horror. Is the it, science in, itself. In, in science fiction, <laughs> science is a gleaming. Uh, not always. No, 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 not at all. Science. No, no. no. <laughs> it's oh. not always a positive, optimistic thing. Are you saying that no. science fiction classically was always positive and had a good thing? I mean, that it was always good for the world. I mean, dystopian stuff is definitely yeah, the opposite. True. That's true. So no, mm. I mean, it. I mean, that's one thread. I mean, there yeah. can be the, you know, science will make everything better. Mm-hmm. That's a thread of science fiction, but it's not the only thread. Um, right. And science fiction as creating horrible things is another thread. Mm. The fly. Mm-hmm. Um, the well, rock you call that rock. science fiction? The fly is science. Yeah. For horror. <laughs> It's science fiction. A man gets turned into a fly and he gets killed. He did experiments. He did experiments. That's silly. Have to have the cast folks send them into the other room. Do you think it's you? Okay, Jonathan, is the fly horror or science fiction? It's both. Stop. It's both. Stop. But hang on. I mean, how can we sit there and say that we like the idea of blurring uh, genre boundaries and everything and then say something can't be science fiction and horror? Absolutely. Okay. What I objected to, and I have objected to this uh, silently from the audience and a couple of panels I've heard this weekend, mm-hmm. is saying people saying, "Well, what makes it horror? Where does it cross the line into horror?" 
And why is that not a mainstream story? Or why is that no. not a science fiction? And that's thinking inside the box all over again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It has to be one thing or the other. And I, I think I totally agree with Ellen's point about the fly. Uh, the, the original George Langelan story mm-hmm. from Playboy was clearly a guy who knew nothing about science at all, coming up with some hand-waving that uh, had to do with matter transmitters. But mm-hmm. what he really wanted to figure out was how to get that guy turning into a fly. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, 70 years ago, Kafka so, could have written the same story exactly. without any scientific appurtenances at all. Yeah. With yeah. a very horrific effect. But nobody thinks of the metamorphosis of science fiction because he never thought for a minute that he needed to rationalize that <laughs> transformation. Hmm. Uh, so, so, that's like since we're talking about horror, why is it that from an outsider's perspective, you see these wonderful, elegant, in- intelligent, seductive anthologies that are edited that give you the overviews of the history of the field? Book, you know, books like the ones you did, Peter, for um, the Library of America, uh, maybe Hartwell's Dark Descent. Mm-hmm. And you then turn around and you see it on a day-to-day basis going past, and it doesn't seem to resemble it that much. It seems, as you say, inward-looking, dodgy-looking fanzines... Mm-hmm really kind of not what seems to be being described, being described as the best of the field or the, the history you're choosing to take out of it. Well, you know, sure there's I'm... a lot of truth in what you say, I think. Um, uh, if, if what you're describing is uh, see, seeing what goes by, mm. you often see um, little magazines uh, without much ambition uh, uh, that seek to publish the Better uh, Turner's Friends, and these these are uh, people without um, without much ambition, really. And I think uh, they are lacking knowledge of the field, the uh-huh. past of the field. Yeah. But there's a lot of good horror being published too. Sure. I mean, sure. I do read sure. a lot of a lot uh-huh. of it, and there are good magazines to publish horror. Uh, uh, Black Static, Weird Tales has gotten darker. Black Static um, is good, yeah. or Chizine, whatever they want to call it. Yeah. Um, you know, cemetery Dance. And they are trying to do more ambitious types of horror and certain anthologies. Mm. A lot of, not, mm. I'd, I'd say some anthologies. <laughs> mm. yeah. um, I do think it's, horror does seem more insular than other fields right now. But it, I think it always has been this push-pull of, of people who are adamant about publishing the small press because no one understands them but other horror writers. Yeah, well, and then the other people who are more ambitious say no. Yeah, it's like yeah. you know, this is horror. That's horror. Yeah, well, that's the bad bottom end of horror that uh, mm-hmm. has always been pretty much the same. Um, content with uh, con- con- content con- content to arouse uh, d- disgust or or. Mm-hmm. Like a kind of okay, well, to outdo the other with something. Oh, yeah. there, there was this splatterpunk thing where it was just like, how much more violent mm. can you get than the last? But there were good, there were good splatterpunk stories. Well, there were. Uh, but uh, how is that different? Just to throw another wrench into the works, from uh, small, small press graduates of MFA programs publishing zines <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, that are sold and that are traded for other copies of other zines yeah. that have circulations of three hundred. That are imitating, uh, you know, the, the the well Raymond Carver twenty years yeah, ago, that's right. uh, mm-hmm. Salinger fifty years ago. In other words, you're talking about a kind of insular, self-reflective, navel-gazing. Oh, right. exactly. Was there science fiction like that? I think that I'm analog is. That. I'm sure. Well, I don't know that analogs like that, but I'm sure. That, well, no, I, I am confident. I know there are. 
fanzines and there are small press magazines, which are exactly that, which are exactly a, a call back to the heart of the thing that we loved when we loved the thing that we did, and it'll publish yeah. our friends and we'll all love each other and it'll be awesome. Um, the difference seems to be with horror as opposed to everything else, is at the very least from a distance, people are using to, are willing to use that poster image as a synopsis for horror in a way they don't use it for fantasy or science fiction or for MFA writing literary programs. There's not a tradition of horror magazines in the field. Mm. There, I mean, there is not as many not science fiction. No. I mean, yeah, I mean, the pulps. And, and, and the ones that uh, have existed recently all die away very very quickly they may get um, a, you know a story from a well-known writer who takes um, who looks upon them with a kind of kindness and sub submits a story two issues later they're gone yeah. um, they're they're not even supposed to to last much longer but I, I, I to, to return Gary's point I'd say that the only difference between those kinds of things and the and the kind of MFA and post MFA writing is that the latter, has been granted a you know an infinite, mm. infinitely greater degree of uh, mm. cultural um, uh, worth. It's been institutionalized. Yeah. It's, it's in the universities uh, in, in a way that horror. And of course, but on the other way, there is horror being published in mainstream publications. I mean, once in a while you can find something really dark in the New Yorker, not very often. Yeah. And and the Atlantic mm -hmm. and Esquire. I remember Red Bow was an Esquire by um, George Sanders, Saunders. Oh yeah. Yeah, I mean there are, and Dan Chown has published the Bees. Where was that? Writer. The Bees. That's I right. forget where that was. Uh -huh. But there has right. been horror. Part is published in the mainstream, although of course no one ever caught that. Well, and Ben Percy. Yeah. And, but that's always happened. You're right. I mean, we were talking about uh, earlier the well, the Truman Capote story, which is an American fantastic tale, A Rose for Emily Faulkner's mm -hmm. that's a classic horror story. Uh, uh, Torch Song of Cheever yeah. Story. So the horror has always been a mode which American writers and English writers probably even more so have dipped into once in a while uh -huh. without identifying themselves as a horror writer. Right. Um, uh, but that's because they write other things too. And because, yeah. because it is not exact, it's not a genre. It's a mode. It's a tone. I agree with that. And so I think that's why, in a way, it's more flexible that people don't see it that way. Uh -huh. I mean, people who are trying to say, okay, I want to read horror. What do I read? It's like, well, yeah. you just read that, but no, you can't. If you read all of Faulkner's short yeah. stories, no, they're not all going to be horror. No, they're not. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, th th that's that's what I, I think goes back to the point you were making earlier, and the point that Brian Aldous was making that yeah. it's an effect. I, I, it's an effect which any writer is capable of achieving in mm -hmm. any story that he or she wants to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If but, it's good enough. If it's good enough. If you know how to do it. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, why? Thank you. Um, I just said thank you because, of course, we have wine in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Just handed me something. Um, but in other words, uh, this is not, I think, news to any of us here that it's simply uh, a resource for writers, and it's always been a resource. Uh, it, it didn't have the pulp tradition. It had weird tales, which is older than amazing stories. Uh, but Farnsworth Wright was not John W. Campbell. Uh, mm -hmm. You didn't have an editor shaping the genre consciously right. uh, and, and, and basically pushing writers in a certain direction. As far as I could tell, weird tales responded to what became what about the Lovecraft school. Icky, uh, you know, the creepy, ugly stories, you know, I mean, I, were they more comic books? I'm trying to remember. Creepy and... Oh, the, you know, the, 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 the Vault of Horror, the yeah, Alfeld yeah. story, I mean, and... Peace Horror. Right. Um, yeah. But the other thing uh, is that a lot of the horror writers um, were kind of published in men's magazines, which don't exist anymore. You know, um, a lot true. of Richard Matheson, 
Mm-hmm. It was published in Playboy, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you know the Playboy um, Book of Terror and the Supernatural. Uh, and the Supernatural was something was a touchstone for me growing up. And I didn't mm-hmm. realize, oh, they came, they, all these stories were published in Playboy, including Ray Russell's Sardonicus. Yeah, and, 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 Ray the, and The Fly. Yeah, and all these uh-huh. wonderful horror stories were published in the men's magazines uh-huh. that don't do that anymore. And they don't, many of the magazines don't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Gallery, all those places. They, yeah, yeah uh-huh. they all published men's, the men's magazine published horror. Some, some horror. Yeah. Well, some. I mean, along with everything else. I, th- I think... Um, Horror of the sort we've been talking about, about just now um, uses uh, readily available means to indicate a, a destabilization of the of the universe of, of um, the reality we we encounter daily, and to um, to introduce a kind of radical unknowability to um, to the the structure of, of the universe. It is possible, in fact, it's preferable, infinitely preferable, to to address those particular goals directly instead of fit, filtering them through vampires and zombies hmm. and, 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 and to use more innovative, more honest ways to, um, to suggest a, a profound unknowability uh, and, and enigmatic nature to uh, uh, the reality that confronts us every day, um, uh, unknowability of other people, of human relations, but above all, of the structure of of, um, of what we call reality. And when when those particular notes are struck, then you have horror. I think. But I, I mean, see nothing wrong with, but I, I agree with that, but mm-hmm. I also disagree that I don't think you, there's no reason to dump vampires and werewolves and zombies. I, I think if you're there's using, no reason I mean, to dump them, but there's yeah, no reason I mean, to keep on no, celebrating. No, no, <laughs> but they're really, you know, if, if someone wants to write about them and yeah. use them in a way that's in, unusual, it's just using, pounding it over the head. With you know, like mm-hmm. every story has a spaceship, so it's science fiction. I was going to say that yeah, it's, it's accoutrement. It's the furniture, mm-hmm. and if you use the furniture mm-hmm. well and do something interesting in it and tell a really good story and interesting characters, then you can use that furniture again. It gets more and more difficult to do, though. Yes, but uh, when they're good, they're fantastic. I suppose they are, but uh, I mean, if Kelly Link has written any number of zombie stories, yes, and, but but they're they they are uh, a, one crucial step apart from. Uh, Everybody else's zombie stories or her witch stories are, are are unlike anybody else's. And when you come right down, she's a unique writer. That's why she she's a really really good writer. I'm, I mean that's that's where we want to go, and that's where we want the the, the discussion to center. Um, because otherwise, we're we're talking about a phenomenon that is far too familiar, really, to be of much interest. Well, the destabilization. If I can go back to that mm-hmm. for a minute and put a plug in for a. Another new book by a friend of mine, uh, John Clute in England has got his collection of essays out, not a collection mm-hmm. of reviews, called yeah. Pardon This Intrusion, <laughs> subtitled Fantastica and the World Storm, and I will leave it up to John to explain what the world storm is. <laughs> but Fantastica is his overarching term for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Yeah. And the title of his book comes from the moment in English literature when he says Fantastica began. And it's the scene with the old, the, the kindly old man in his cottage, 
uh, when Frankenstein's monster knocks at the door. Mm -hmm. And he opens the door, and of course he can't see the monster, and the monster says, pardon this intrusion, but I am a weary traveler in, in need of rest. Mm -hmm. um, and Clute sort of, he's, he's sort of doing a musical uh, improvisation on that scene, says that that's when Fantastic began, because there you have someone unaware of the appearance of something utterly changing his universe, mm -hmm. which, is, uh, which is destabilizing his universe, which is fantastic but not supernatural. Uh, in the sense that mm -hmm. we understand in that novel that Frankenstein has has been created. He's part of the material universe. Mm -hmm. um, and then John traces that back to 1750 with the beginnings of the breakdown of the Enlightenment control of our view of the world when he says, we began to realize we lived on a planet, not in a world. Mm -hmm. And that planet was vulnerable. Yeah, and we were vulnerable. Uh, enter enter a, a huge... Uh, Quantity of doubt and fear and uh, you know mm -hmm. uncertainty. Mm -hmm. um, the, you mean uh, we don't mean the sun doesn't travel around us? A literal deep decentery. It's a question that I've wondered about for a long time. Which when you talk about fantastic literature, and I've asked people about this without getting a satisfactory answer, although everybody has one. When does literature become fantastic? Because mythology is not fantastic literature. People believed in it. Fairy tales were part of the natural order, mm -hmm. demons and witches and so forth mm -hmm. and so on. At some point, you have to make a distinction between the natural world and the supernatural world in a kind of enlightenment way. And that's, I think, what, I think that's what Clute's getting at with that. I don't think fairy tales were meant to be realistic. They weren't meant to be realistic, but they, I, don't, I don't think people were listening to them or uh, receiving them as deliberate material violations of the world. They, the trade tales were, had witches and, and goblins in them, but people were thinking, well, witches and goblins might be there, mm -hmm. might be part of the world. Some people still believe that. And some people still do. Most of, let's not get into what percentage of the American population. <laughs> or the world population. I mean, but, but isn't the, you know, aren't the two differences with those are the examples you're giving, when you move from mythology to fantasy or something, you're moving from when you see it as part of, you say, the natural world, the supernatural world. And when you move from um, you know, where fairy tales come from, aren't they really, in a sense, whilst they become fantasy, aren't they something else? Weren't they tools of moral instruction, really, more than anything else? No, I don't yeah, think so. Consolation, uh, also uh, uh, easily handleable fears. But the, uh, they they did emerge um, cl classically from an oral tradition, and in some of the best and oddest of fairy tales, you can sense the passage of time. You 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 can sense uh, the 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 yoking together of elements that were only joined together over time by people telling one story after another, um, and and that. That sort of uh, unpredictability sometimes is what makes fairy tales very, very exciting. But the moral instruction thing, I have to take a little bit of exception okay. to that, in the sense that uh, no moral instruction. They became they became that Victorian and parole. Uh, yeah, but if, if you go back and, and and look at the Grimm fairy tales, even the Grimm brothers were re rearranging them. Mm -hmm. But the oral tradition tales, it's very difficult to find a moral in. Rapunzel. What's a moral Rapunzel? Get a haircut? No, I mean, there's not supposed to be a moral. Don't steal from the don't, witches. Don't steal from the witches. But, <laughs> but by and large, by the time of the, of, of the mid-19th century, every Victorian children's book 
was taking these earlier folktales and jamming them into moral lessons. Mm -hmm. um, Can I go back to mythology for a minute? Okay, mythology. Um, now, maybe when mythology was written, the people who wrote it, the people who were reading it, then didn't consider it fantasy. But we, looking at it today, consider it fantasy. I mean, Cyclops and sirens mm -hmm. and all these elements, we know that they're not real. And we see it as a fantasy. We see it, but I don't think that people are reading uh, the Iliad as, or the Odyssey as fantasy. I'm talking about Bullfinch's mythology. But, oh, yeah. But if, if you're using that material today, you're using it as a fantasy writer. Oh. The Odyssey, when I, I read that as a kid, I never read the Iliad. It was boring. Well, but the Odyssey, mm. I thought it was fun because mm -hmm. it had this fantasy stuff in it. I read Bullfinch's mm. mythology cover to cover when my parents had in the house. I did too. And it was, I loved it. It was fantasy. Too. It was all fantasy. That's what I read okay, it. And I read that along. To me, I read it alongside the fairy tales. You're, you know, it was part of the same part and parcel fantasy worlds that I loved. Well, you're saying in part then that fantasy is the way you read something. Is you said, well, you're... <laughs> John, John Clute said that he didn't think that mythology originally was read by the people who created it and went at that time by fantasy. No, the oral tradition. I'm not sure I agree. I don't know. I don't know enough it about that. It wasn't created as, but, um, as fantasy. Okay, my theory. But as a, as a, a real depiction of what was possible. Well, there's an explanation for why their gods were horrible to them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They mythology them. was science, in effect. There's a spectrum. I mean, the way I tend to think of it is there, there's a, there, there, there are two, two ways at the ends of the spectrum where you can depict impossible events. One is mythology, where the people within the culture don't believe out of this fantasy, if it's mm -hmm. their mythology. Fantasy is somebody else's mythology, but not ours. Mm -hmm. At the opposite extent is um, basically schizophrenia, basically hallucinations. Mm -hmm. There was a popular, very popular bunch of best-selling books in the 60s and 70s, which were basically case histories of schizophrenics. The most famous one was I Never Promised to a Rose Garden by uh -huh. Joanna Greenberg. And if you read Joanna, go back and read I Never Promised to a Rose Garden, and the passages that take place in her fantasy world are pretty good fantasy passages. Mm -hmm. The only thing is we realize this is supposed to be a disordered mind, yeah. the extreme individual right. case on the one hand. The same thing and, with images by Robert Alf in the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah uh, when, when you have things going on. So on, on the one hand, you have an extreme cultural case where the entire culture accepts this as possible. Mm -hmm. um, and on the other, the extreme individual case where only this one person sees this happening. Mm -hmm. And fantasy, as we see it, is somewhere in between those two extremes, mm -hmm. where we recognize it as not being true and not being uh, a schizophrenic hallucination. Mm -hmm. That's my theory. Anyway. <laughs> and I'm sticking to it. And I've got a glass. Well, what I find interesting mm -hmm. when I'm reading something... As a reader, when I'm reading something where the question, obviously the, re the writer is trying to get you to the question, is this real or is this this person's imagination? Right. Yeah. I'll always go for the imagination every time. Of course it's not real. I've, I mean, of uh, course it's really happening because uh, this is a fantasy novel. And of course, you know, it's not, the guy's not crazy. He's, you know, this is what's yeah, happening to uh, us. <laughs> and it's like, I'm sorry, what's the question here? You know? Yeah. <laughs> so I think then that sense is how you read it or how you come to it. And if you if you enjoy fantasy and read mm -hmm. a lot of fantasy, if you're a person who only reads realistic fiction, you're going to automatically oh the guy's crazy. Yeah, uh, which does go back to the point of how you approach something yeah. depends on what you come up with. Yeah. But uh, the turn of the screw problem, mm -hmm. which is the classic uh, you know ambiguity: do you choose to read this in one way or another? Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of, there's a whole tradition of stories that leave you open like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, the famous uh, Hungarian critic. Svetan Todorov, his definition of the fantastic were only those stories where you have to hmm. 
I have this moment of indecision, whether it's the marvelous, which is the supernatural, mm -hmm. or the uh, uncanny, mm -hmm. which is just a psychological. Yeah, yeah. Is the uncanny way psychological? Well, the know? uncanny in the Freudian sense oh, is just oh, really, okay. really strange. Yeah. Yeah. Well, which is a good, a, a, a very good uh, category. Uh, the uncanny is that which seems to remind you of something that you can't remember, you know? That it, mm -hmm. uh, it, it, it's an evocation of a realm that you um, feel to be real but cannot identify. Um, and in Freud, it's always linked to something about yourself you don't want to acknowledge, which is why it can't be identified and uh, you can't, it can't be uh, further parsed. Yeah, Freud's essay, The Uncanny, was actually, the German term was unheimlich, oh, which right. means unhomelike, yeah. uh, unfamiliar, strange, but... Right. But, you know, just yeah. different. Uh, I don't know. Are we going anywhere with this? <laughs> <laughs> We're certainly going around in circles as we try and understand, well, discuss horror and what it is that makes horror horror. I mean, I, it, it, which, which I guess is one of those old late night conversations you'd have at any con convention, exactly that kind of point, isn't it? Well, what may be horror to one reader may not be horror to another. Sure. And that's the other thing. Well, um, well it's. Is a reaction to what's on the, what you're reading or seeing. Well, and, and I, I think that there's there's a kind of viscerality in horror, and I've seen this. I don't say this. I've seen this a lot in in your anthologies, Ellen. And I've seen it a lot in Peter's fiction. That endangered children are really disturbing. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. and, and and I think that comes back to anybody who's either been a child or has had a child. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. That without having to go to extremes of uh, narrative invention, yeah. of graphic invention. You can just really terrify somebody by putting a child in danger. But I feel much more upset when an animal's in. <laughs> yeah, I'm much more upset when I see animals being hurt or killed and or read, reading about them or seeing. Really? Yeah. Huh. yeah. I don't. I have no idea why. No. <laughs> Maybe because I love eating animals. Okay. <laughs> you like animals. Compartmentalization. I don't know where we're going with that. But uh, maybe we shouldn't. Glad to enjoy your crap. All animals? I mean, if you saw no. a scorpion being tormented or a, well, I a, a, I still a lizard, you probably wouldn't being be Being killed, too. no. Being tormented, it would bother me. Yeah. I mean, that is the iguana. I mean, that was pitiful. Mm. You know, torturing an iguana. Down. It would be pleasant. Dead rabbits. rabbits. No, rabbits getting their hind legs cut off oh, and still being alive. Remember. I don't. I... <laughs> <laughs> what about frogs' legs? That's horrible. <laughs> okay, we're well. Anything we're you can eat, to... you're allowed to kill. You know, it's yeah. our general rule, which is horrific enough as it is. Yeah. Um, Jonathan, but, I'm curious um, as to why you don't grab. You, you're doing the year's best fantasy and science fiction, and there have been some stories in it. Certainly, uh, one of the most famous in recent years, uh, I was talking to Ellen uh, today about it, that uh, Karen Joy Fowler's The Pelican Bar. Yeah, yeah. And Ellen sees that completely as a horror story. I know well, she does. Well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, what's your question? Why don't, why don't I include horror or why don't I classify it as horror? Well, I guess I'm thinking, do you even think about that? I'm looking for, uh, on one hand, at a simple level, I'm looking for a filter that allows me to not read things, that gives me permission to not read things. Um, so <laughs> so if, if it's in a book labeled horror, by and large, it does give me a lot of permission to not re to read it. Uh, oh, so, 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 so there's that, you know, because it means that it's not what I have to read for the year's best. And there's, as Ellen well, knows very well, there's too much stuff to read for a year's best. Yeah. Um, 
it's great anthologies where um, it, it, everything gets rolled up together and it's it's all more or less horror and it's all more or less fantasy and it's all more or less realistic fiction too. I agree. I mean, well, that's where you where you end up with with um, Karen Fowler's story and why you know I can include it in a book as science fiction, even though I know that in many ways it's also a mainstream story and also a horror story. Um, uh, and yeah, and I will say that I mean it's not something I feel very dogmatically about because if you look back at the books that I've done, they do tend to blur. I don't sort of get very. Um, concerned. I guess what I basically do is I filter out not supernatural horror by and large, because mm -hmm. that way at least I can turn and say, well, I'm dealing with what I'm dealing with is the spectrum of non-realist fiction as much mm. as possible, and I'm going from the hardest of hard science fiction out to slipstreamy literary fiction that has a non-realist element. I'm dealing with stuff which is, has horror as a filter or not, and horror can apply and is perfectly valid in the context of my book as long as it has, and this is a discussion Ellen and I have had once or twice in the past, at, when it has that inexplicable element that's, you know, it's, it's not, say, a straight serial killer story or something where it could happen on the streets of Manhattan next week. It's got something mm -hmm. that's not realist. You know? I see. I, uh, yeah, and yeah. I don't see, for me, that's part of horror and that's fine, but I try to ignore the science fiction. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's something I know, I mean, when I actually look for, I mean, I'll see, if something mm -hmm. is a happy ending, it's highly unlikely it's going to be something I would consider horror. Yeah, so if I'm right. reading a science fiction anthology, I may skip to the last page and see if it seems they're happily ever after, and pretty much that's mm -hmm. not going to be horror. Mm -hmm. So it means I don't have to read it. Quite right. I mean, that's for the best of the year. I right. mean, obviously working on original anthologies are completely different, yeah. but when, you're, when you are trying to codify a year in a particular mm -hmm. genre, subgenre, mm -hmm. um, you have but to I, I, I eliminate guess, something. Yeah, the point we started out with was uh, that, that these are not subsets of anything. It's no. Obviously there are horror stories that are not fantasy stories and that are not science fiction stories and fantasy stories that are not horror stories. Um, and, and yet, I, I, I keep thinking the stories that interest me most are the ones that may have that effect, but may be doing more than that effect. There may be, okay, Peter, your newest story. Can we talk about that for a minute? The Ballad of Ballard and Sandrine. Sandrine, yes, of course. Let's well, talk about that. No. Nobody's read it. I, I have. I have. I read it. of the year. <laughs> and I love it. It's brilliant. Oh, you read it. Oh, oh, yes, I've read it. It's fantastic. In fact, it's interesting that Gary brought it up, because I was going to ask you, Peter, do you see it as a yeah. fantasy or a horror story? Uh, to the extent I want to call it anything, it would certainly be a horror story. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it seems to me to be particularly rich. The, 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 the time-shifting business does not strike me as... It's not science-fictional. Uh, really. It's certainly not science-fictional. Oh. It, it's intend to, intended to... Uh, allude to the contemporary uh, simultaneity of all um, time, really. It seems almost like a time slip back and forth. And, and it is, it is a, a kind of a time a narrative, slip. Yeah, it's, it's more of a narrative but device. Far more important than that is the irregular nature of the sexual bond between those two people, yeah. the, the, the great disparity in their ages, and the um, uh, perverse... Mm. Uh, uh, a twist that that that, that their sexuality has, but of course where where it's going is toward the ending, mm. where mm. where something mag magnificent and noble takes over and, and, and awful in the and, and awful and glorious, you know. 
Yeah, and it starts off very. It doesn't start off exactly. It does start off realistic. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, start, and as it goes on, it can gets more and more. It's more strange. 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 It gets yeah. very strange. But yeah. I, I think to me, it sounds very limiting to call that a horror story. Huh. Why is it limiting? Well, that's, well, because it seems to me horror, horror is part of what it does, mm-hmm. and part of what it does has to do with this uh, complicated use of narrative time, which may be a more literary way of mm-hmm. looking at it than, than is necessary. But I don't think the story builds to a single effect of horror. I think yes, horror. Yes, it does. You think it does? Yes. Uh-huh. I, I think that. That's, <laughs> I don't know. I think so. <laughs> I, I think it's I think it's there, but I don't. And think also, it doesn't have to do that. Horror doesn't necessarily. Have that's to. kind I think of my you're, point. You're you're you're, you're un- undermining uh, the magnificence of horror if you say that it's, to, to call it a horror story limits it a bit. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, agree. I, I, uh, I, I think uh, horror takes in a lot of yardage. Well, okay. <laughs> what I'm thinking of when you say horror taking in a lot of yardage, that's our early part of the discussion of horror being much broader than yeah. this narrow genre. Yeah. Uh, uh, in, in the sense of horror stories that I grew up with, this is a lot more complex. Yeah, horror, horror, horror ain't horror anymore. But it, it was, was like that. I mean, a, for a, long time. a lot of Richard Matheson, some of it was kind of schematic, but some of it, I mean, Dance of Death, didn't he write that? I mean, um, he, he wrote he wrote jazz stories that were very dark, The Dark Journey, Dark Journey. Hmm. I mean, I published a bunch of them in hmm. science fiction. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah, and they were brilliant, mainstreamy, but dark threads going through them. I mean, it, okay. it doesn't, it's always been, there have always been stories that have been more complex. I guess, mm-hmm. I guess when I say limiting in horror, as you say, it's horror and nothing else, that's limiting. Mm-hmm. You're saying you cannot look at it as a mainstream story. There, I think there are ways of looking at it as a science fiction story. It's just hmm. the reader has to bring that into it. It's, mm-hmm. not, it's not there. Um, we should also it's mention... It's just a story. It's, a, it's just, <laughs> yeah, it's just it's a yarn I made up. <laughs> but we should mention in the current issue of Conjunctions. Right. Uh, but we'll be in the year's best... Oh, best number. Best yes. year number four. Best tour. Yeah. Or the end of the four. So... Um, Best romance stories. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to say, it, it, I mean, I can't imagine there being a. Mu- it, it's it's, it's going to be one of the, the best two or three novellas of the year, easily, generally. Easily. It's actually officially a novelette. Well, depending on your rules, it's what? Do you say 16,000 words or 12,000? 16,000. I mean, depending on whose yeah. rules you're counting, it's a novelette or a novella. Oh, okay. Yeah. Except okay. for rules, it's a novelette. I call it a novella. <laughs> but by my own little definition, it's a romantic novella. Well, well, isn't the the original definition of novella just a a little novel or a short novel? Isn't that what they? I mean, it wasn't an Italian uh, it? source yeah, or something. The novel is not very long, like a cigarillo, right? Yeah, but then novelette gets thrown in, and that kind of puts everything off. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's like a sermonette. Or... Yeah, I don't know that novelette. And then the novellini, 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 yeah. <laughs> We are going off the, the thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I will say that whilst, yes, it's going to be in most of the year's best this year, it certainly is justifies the, the price of admission to conjunctions that, this time out. Because you don't write that many of these stories, do you, Peter? No, I don't. Uh, this one came upon me really because I wanted to write a story for Brad Morrow for this edition, this um, ed, edition of conjunctions, which was about travel. Yeah. yeah. And um, a long time ago, I thought... That perhaps I could do something about torture on a yacht going down the Amazon, hmm. uh, and that, and because that looked like it wasn't going to go anywhere very promising, all I did was write down those three words: torture, yacht, Amazon. And so when I was thinking about writing something for Brad, I came upon this old note of mine, 
And what emerged was very different from what I would have written in the mid-'80s, which would have been a little stronger, a little harder to take, I think. Um, it's hard to take. It's pretty hard to take. <laughs> well, God, you should have said, Oh, you know, it's a good thing it doesn't read what I would have written. Twenty. <laughs> um, anyhow, it just it, I I liked what what was happening to it every day, and and uh, it was always important to me that there actually was a tribe of uh, river tribe of um, Indians that had spoken in language derived from birdsong, uh, a tribe so isolated from other human beings that they had no notion of conventional human speech and evolved their language out of, out of birdsong. Um, this seemed so sort of magical to me that it, 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 it led in all sorts of other quirky uh, mm. dimensions. <clears throat> well, I guess that's part of what I'm thinking of as science fictional about it. And, and mm. It's just traveling into an unknown area. It's science fiction in the sense of H. Ryder Haggard science fiction, <laughs> or, or even Heart of Darkness. You're under your mind. Heart of Darkness is a horror story. I know, yeah. but it's not science fiction. It's, it's about exploring an alien environment and coming across a decadent civilization. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that's science fiction? It's, it's, it's a adventure. It's, adventure. But then it's not so alien. <laughs> you know. No, it's not so alien. Ah, uh, humanity. But the Heart of Darkness has certainly been a template for a lot of science fiction stories of various yeah, kinds. Yeah, I know. And there are echoes of it in, in Ballard and Forbidden Green. Planet. Yeah. You, you can't put a river into a scary story without evoking Conrad. Yeah. That's just one of the rules of life. Yeah, I think, <laughs> I think that's right. Um, well, I'm glad you all like my story. Love it. Yeah. Really, really. No, I mean, really. I mean, it's interesting because we're talking around this whole subject of genre and how we're going to classify it. Something which none of us really want to seem to do until we have to. And I know that when I when I read the uh, the story, when I read the Ballad of Ballad and Sandrine, I wasn't thinking of it as a horror story. I mean, to some degree, I was sitting there going, "Is this going to be overtly a horror story and something that I might not consider for my year's best?" I guess. Uh, uh, and th then what I, I I very quickly, I think within probably the first section of the story, you know, the, the first bit before the first you know, time shift, it yeah. moved into just feeling like this. How would I put it? It it's a eerie supernatural story or non-natural story mm. and the fact that you whether you consider it science fiction or fantasy or horror i don't think science fiction really is a stretch gary uh, mm -hmm. but but certainly something in the, yeah. the sphere of the fantastic was what, what got to me anytime i read time shifts yeah. back and forth right. in it it's confusing to me so i basically went back to reread it really carefully and yeah. see okay when does this actually happen and when is this happening right and that's interesting why is that you know yeah. so in a way it's a, almost a puzzle too yeah it all matches up though. oh it does it's a complicated puzzle that's yeah. really horrific mm. oh yeah absolutely so it, it adds up and the, the other dream was your uh, novella from last year, A Special Place, which has no supernatural elements whatsoever, no. and is really, really disturbing. It's very unsettling because it, it it invites you to take in the the world from the point of view of a person who doesn't see it in a conventional way at all, yeah. and to both judge that person and at the same time uh, understand him. I mean, stand back in horror and dread, but um, also to participate far more than would be comfortable in his thought process. Um, I, that's something I like doing. You know, it's, and you do it very well. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. one of my little things. Yeah. Why do you find yourself 
and this may just be my observation, it may not be true, but why do you find yourself drawn to writing novellas when you come to short fiction rather than shorter shorts? Uh, you know, I well, mean, yeah. well the, uh, the good old standard American literary answer was because it's easier to write longer ones than, than to write short, short, shorter ones. Uh, and it takes, you know, it takes more uh, discipline to, to write a 20-page story rather than a 60-page story. But the real answer for me, I think, is that I like uh, a long breath. I, I, I like to take a long wind-up. I like, um, <laughs> I, I, I like uh, to uh, cover a great distance at a kind of an easy jog. Um, it's a matter of pace and... and what, uh, and that 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 length feels very natural to me, and I sometimes think I wish I could just write novellas all day long, write nothing but novellas, and I I would have an I think I'd have a wonderful time because it wouldn't take me four years to do them, the way it does to write novels now, and I I could have the satisfaction of completion more frequently. I would have little goods to put in my shop window more more frequently, <laughs> which is very useful for some someone like me. Um, all you know, all over the place. Composers that have little things that, that they put in their shop windows all the time at at uh, intervals. Um, mm -hmm. It's it just I I'd, I'd love to write country house novellas. I'd like to write as take a season and write stories in which a young man or or a young woman goes to a country house for the first time and, and must meet the people there. Um, that can be so much fun. There's, there's so many different parts of a country house. You know? <laughs> <laughs> the basement and the maid's quarters and all those uh, women married to unhappy men. And, Why don't you know, we do a series in Quality Novel? Like um, that. I mean, a series of five novellas in the, yeah, in the country house. Maybe I could. You know, maybe just I could. fool everybody. I'd have to, yeah. <laughs> uh, or if it were the same person. Uh, re returning the country house at different times of his life, perhaps. Um, anyhow, it just it just strikes me as um, a very natural uh, mode. I never would have thought this about myself, and it didn't used to be true. But for the you know, past ten mm -hmm. to twenty years, it really is a uh, one one of the ways that uh, I I I most like to proceed. One of the things I think. Also, that uh, and that I like about your fiction, but a lot of the fiction that I find attractive, at whatever length is, and, and I could I could mention any number of other people, mm. uh, Graham Joyce and uh, yeah. Charlie Link, people who write just really well crafted sentences, mm. yeah. and who pay attention to, and, and there's a there's a pleasure you get out of reading a, a story that is just where the sentences are. They may not necessarily be pleasant, but they're complete lilting, yeah. mm. and and you get into a sort of world through that kind of language, yeah. which a lot of writers don't pay that much attention to. I yeah. just finished uh, Graham Joyce's *The Silent Lamb*. Yeah, it's me too. Gorgeous. It's gorgeous. It's really I mean, good. Huh? The first section is just so incredibly beautiful. I mean, it's yeah. about snow. It's about skiing, and it yeah. ends with a horrible accident. Yeah. Um, it is just gorgeously written. And, and I really enjoyed it. Actually, that was the one I was thinking about when I mentioned it. I think it's a beautiful novel. I think it doesn't break any ground conceptually at all. By the no. time you're halfway no. through it, you're guessing all the possible yeah. endings. Uh, but it doesn't it's just, matter. It doesn't matter. No. Exactly. It's a, it's a beautiful And, and actually, I didn't guess the final act. The actual I didn't either. Well, I, I mean, in the middle of it, oh, I know where this guy. Oh, damn, damn, damn. And then I realized, oh, no, actually, maybe it's not. Or it doesn't mm. matter. It's going someplace else. Yeah. I mean, he's, he, it was like a variation mm. on 
the. He was, he was, he was, he was, he was playing a variation on a theme and doing mm-hmm. it beautifully. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and uh, there, there were, you know, there are only like four or five things. This is essentially the plot of this is people get in a horrible skiing accident in the Alps and return to the village and there's no one there. Right. It's a classic. There's never anyone there. <laughs> no, there's, 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 there's candles are burning in the church and there's fresh meat up. Uh, that, that's just, how many stories have begun that way? And you think, oh, I know where this is going, but you're yeah, right. right. After a while you think, well, no. And then after a while you're thinking, well, yes. I like reading this. Because, like, I don't care where it goes. And I'm actually interested to see where the heck he's going with this. It's not beginning to turn bad. You know? it's, it's been there three weeks already. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. something is beginning to happen. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, so it's a joy to He's a good writer. And he, his, his sentences are always worth uh, paying attention to because he's paid attention. Mm-hmm. Um, it's true that there are pl- plenty of writers who don't care about that at all. And there are many, many readers that can't tell a difference. But, uh, just, mm. you know, it's, uh, clearly it's better to be able to tell a difference and to, to pay attention to that kind. Because attention is what is, above all, rewarded. Mm. You know? And it's not a difficult book. I mean, I was slammed no. right through oh, it. Oh, it's, it's, yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Mm. But, I mean, there are writers that, and, and sometimes I think that careful attention to language and nuance sometimes does lead to a longer Story. I mean, I, the Quiet Land is a short novel, but the Silent Land. The Silent, the Silent Land, Land. Mm. The Silent is, is a short novel, but it could be a long novella too. Yeah, it, yeah, it could be. Yeah. Lucius Shepard tends to write longer stories because he writes long, graceful sentences. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you think, okay, these, this, the length of this story is worth reading. Yeah, those sentences. I'm willing to go through this yeah. with him. You know, even if it's not, even if each sentence doesn't go propel the plot, it doesn't right. matter. I don't yeah. care. I want to read it. Well, him, I don't buy it. Well, well that's you, just me. That's, yeah, I, I think he knows how to use language. Huh. Um, <laughs> um, but the, and that I think is to get back to where we started tonight. Are these genres moving outside themselves? I think when you've got writers paying that much attention to the, to their language, is is a good sign for all the genres. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, uh, uh, that's right. all science fiction, fantasy, and horror all have writers who are, in that sense literary writers, mm-hmm. and at the same time read by, uh, by by genre readers, and hopefully eventually by literary readers. Mm-hmm. I'm making a distinction between genre and literary readers, which I'm not going to defend for a minute. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, well, don't think Graham won the, what was the O. Henry Award or the Best yeah. American Short? He won he the O. Henry Major Award. Did he? Well, yeah. for, a, for a short story, it was a chunk of the uh, Confessions or Master Forge. Oh, 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 it was How to Make Friends with Demons. It was a novel. But it was also Confessions of a Master Forger. Am I right about this? Yes, that, yeah, you're right. Yeah, and the, the piece in question appeared in the Paris Review. Right. Really. But it actually oh, appeared great. before in England. Well, that's sneaky, cram choice. Published Paris Review. Yeah. Wow. But it was reprinted from oh, cool. someplace earlier in England, huh. the year before, and they didn't seem to care. Oh really? Okay. Yeah. Oh, and Graham it was is called, so cool. Um, it was something about um, demon, and it um, it was. That was I forget the title of the original. How to make friends with Demons. That became the novel. That was the. But it was there was something about it was a long title. Yeah. And I don't remember the exact title of the original story. Somebody will correct us and supply it on the comments page of Street Podcast. We can I can Google it at some point. But yeah, he's one of our favorite writers. I think for all of us. Absolutely. Yeah. He's so good. Well, it's so unappreciated. Our are we running close to our usual time, John? I, I think we're just about on the cusp of it. I think we might begin to just wrap it up. I want to thank you all for coming in, for, for talking about 
genres. I'm, I am fascinated that we are, well, I am fasc, uh, fascinated by genre boundaries and borders and definitions. They seem to be something we keep coming back to. Um, so. I started out before we got on live. I was saying I feel like I created a monster. In at Omni, when I was in Omni, I actually deliberately tried to blur the boundaries, yeah. and um, and in a way, I feel like I succeeded all too well <laughs> by publishing all kinds of things at Omni, and um, and I felt I feel kind of feel like I created a monster, <laughs> and you know that, and feel weird about it. <laughs> you know? Well, those were good stories. Yeah, yeah. Yes, they, they are. are. I'm not saying they weren't. I mean, they were wonderful stories, and I love them. But I'm afraid that I opened the door to this. Just, um, a dilution of fantasy. Yeah. Oh, I see. We started with that. That's well, it's an expansion. I don't know. Uh, it, well, it depends. Yeah. I mean, that's what my aim was. But. I don't. I, okay. I don't agree with that for this reason, and that is, if there were a law that said there can be 100 fantasy books a year, and that's it, and you had caused half of okay, those to right. start looking like <laughs> Kelly Link stories, that's dilution. Mm -hmm. Okay. If, if fantasy now can publish that three or four hundred books a year yeah. because of that, then you're you're talking about an expansion. Okay. Yeah. So, I don't so, so, so you're okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, on that note, Gary, I shall talk to you next week. Next um, week. And of course, Ellen, I shall see you in Reno fairly soon for World Fantasy World Con. And Peter, we'll we'll cross paths again sometime soon. I hope maybe maybe next year at one of these conventions. I hope. Indeed. Okay. Thank you. Okay, well, thank you very much, and farewell. All right. Bye-bye.